How do we get started setting up and running a fantasy role-playing game? What's the best approach to getting the game off the ground quickly? And how can we do it in such a way as to keep the stress to the minimum? Let's start with this. The best way to get a game going quickly is to begin with a place, a location from which to launch an adventure. Hey, it's Che, and this is Roleplay Rescue. Hello Rescuers, welcome back to Roleplay Rescue, the podcast about getting back to the table. Having recommended that we begin with fantasy, play in a dungeon and consider running games in an open table format, the next question is where do we begin? Answers to this are as myriad and varied as humanity because in some ways how we individually approach play is, well, individual. That said, I have found some strategies which are easy to implement and which lower my anxiety as I move towards preparing a game. This episode makes one big assumption, namely that you're going to design your own adventures and not use pre-written modules or adventure paths. That's because I'm sceptical of the value of running someone else's adventure without modification. Of course, as the angry GM will attest, the first time you run anything, it might be easiest to run a pre-written adventure using pre-generated characters and follow the rules of your chosen game closely. That's been the standard advice for a long time. But I think that's harder than writing your own adventure. I also think it's doing things in the wrong order. And that's because I've come to realise that there is no role-playing game without two things. You need a place to play and you need a goal for the characters. This is Season 11, Episode 6, Imagine Places First. Before you choose a game system, and certainly before you make characters, you need a setting, a fantasy world to play in. Yeah, that sounds daunting, but what we really need is a single location wherein we can begin the game. So when I say a world to play in, what I'm really talking about is the skeleton of an imaginary realm wherein our first adventure can take place. My approach is pretty much bottom-up and incremental. We'll add one thing at a time to our game, and we'll start with a very, very small location. But even this is putting the cart before the horse. Before we start designing world, we need players, because we don't want to waste our time making adventures that our players don't want to play, We should assemble the players we would like to game with first. Choose your players, then get them together to talk about the world. What kind of a world do you, as a whole group, want to play in? For the purposes of this podcast, I'm going to stick to running a fantasy genre game, but even within that label, there lies many choices. Try to avoid choosing the game system until you have the players assembled and you know what kind of a fantasy you want to evoke. Well, at least, that's what I'd advise if you're not hidebound to one role-playing game before you assemble the players. 
Of course, the problem with this piece of advice is that very few players are willing to enter into this discussion. The upside of choosing the game system after you discuss the kind of setting you want to play in is simple though. You can pick the rules that will help you emulate and adjudicate the assumptions of that fantasy world. But then I realised two things. Firstly, most people have their favourite games and build their worlds around the assumptions those games bring. And secondly, I'm a huge fan of GURPS, who would much rather run all my games using the same set of rules because, well, it's easier. Your mileage may vary. Back to the group. What kind of fantasy world do you want to create? For a first game, I would recommend keeping it really simple. Perhaps the best approach is to focus on a sword and sorcery feel, a game where the heroes are either warriors or thieves, and I would really argue that they're all thieves, and only the evil nemesis might have magic. Low tech and low magic is simpler to work with. Think Conan. It's easy to imagine, the tropes are hugely familiar to most people, and it will keep the game rules to fewer complications. But... Of course, it's your group, and you should come up with your own ideas. I'll tell you how to do that in just a second. For the purposes of my examples in this episode, I'm going to stick to a swords and sorcery, low-magic, low-tech world. We'll imagine an archipelago scattered across a broadly Mediterranean-feeling sea. This allows us to have multiple cultures, very much in the spirit of early swords and sorcery stories, with muscled barbarians and deft warriors alike, all of them possible. I enjoy Bronze and Iron Age imagery, so this can include Greek, Roman, Germanic, Egyptian and numerous other kingdoms, all within a short journey across the waters. Let's talk about running the first session. Session 1 is all about establishing the world and the character concepts. I think the angry GM gives good advice when he suggests starting in a social environment where everyone can sit and talk freely. Open up by asking players what role-playing experience they already have, if any, and what kinds of fantastic stories they most enjoy. Get them to reminisce and tell you what they like, be it from RPGs, film, TV, novels, theatre or short stories. Make notes on what they tell you. If Dave enjoyed Warhammer fantasy roleplay as a teen, it tells you something. If Billy likes to play wizards, it tells you something else. If I'm waxing lyrical about Goriel Swiftfoot, any GM listening would be wise to note that I like playing roguish thieves and I really enjoyed slaying that Balrog. Pitch some ideas about the world and see what the group likes. Yeah, swords and sorcery sounds cool, but Billy wants a mage, so make a note and work out how he can get wizardy stuff. James likes deep worlds with proper character motivations and tells endless stories about his heroes persuaded this or that NPC. Well, you know you need interactions with NPCs for James. The point is that you need to listen and discuss. You also need to remember that as GM, you've got to love the world or you won't be able to run it. So make sure you're honest and chip in as well. I love undead. I enjoy playing goblins and orcs and I like dragons. My fantasies usually have these elements. Without them, I might feel a little less excited. Session one is for pitching and sharing ideas. Talk it out. Don't rush. Listen and make notes. If you get the world agreed, then great, but don't rush it. It's better to take notes away and pitch something back that you love and didn't feel that you had to rush than promise on the night. In this conversation, get the players to tell you two things. What kind of characters they prefer to play 
and what they see those characters doing. Every anecdote is a clue as to the games they enjoy playing. Take the time to listen. As for what the characters are doing, try to tease out at least a simple goal. Perhaps they just want to hunt for treasure, the classic fantasy goal, or maybe they want to defeat a powerful nemesis. Again, the memorable games give clues to the kinds of goals that might suit those players. When James tells you about persuading a powerful dragon to cooperate on a quest, you have a strong indication that he likes to influence NPCs and that he wants some kind of epic quest. If you can, get them to imagine their character's home, the place where they begin as a group. Ask them where they're from. This will lead you to the next step, imagining the starting location. You've listened to the players and you've agreed a world in broad terms. Now we can begin to craft a game. But instead of diving headlong into character creation, take some time to imagine the place the characters will come from. Let's begin with the starting place. Player characters need a safe place from which to launch their adventures, but it doesn't have to be totally safe. Most fantasy games begin with a village or small town, but it can just as easily be a nomadic camp or a bustling city, With the latter, start by focusing on a small part of the city that is home. For my example game, I'm imagining a bustling port town on one of the islands. To make the game as accessible as possible to my players, I'm going to propose that it's a Western European feel to it. I suppose picking up on Dave's love of Warhammer, I could make it more Tudor in feel, just without the gunpowder. Pirate captains rub shoulders with legitimate traders, and adventurers are needed for all manner of shady dealings. Why is this a good idea? With a place in mind, it's much easier for the players to imagine a character to inhabit this new fantasy world. Now we can see how our warriors and thieves might fit into this bawdry port town. Well, let's go deeper. Let's use our imagination to bring the place to life in our mind's eye. Imagine you are standing outside the public house on the dock front. What do you see? What do you hear? Bustling dockers and cackling prostitutes, the sound of seagulls, the smell of seawater overpowered by the stench of waste thrown from the windows of the upper apartments. Walk around in your imagination. Perhaps step inside the pub. What's on the sign? Who do you see when you walk inside? The point is to become submerged in the place. If we are seeking deeper otherworld immersion, then the place to start is with our imagination. And the trick is to begin here when we next sit down with our players. Players are prone to mechanical thinking. They often start with the character creation section of the rulebook and they think mechanically about this or that ability. No thank you. Begin by role-playing in your new village. Tell them that they are 15-year-olds and out and about town. Ask them how they are dressed. Are they ragamuffin street urchins in, well, rags? Or are they walking alongside their mother wearing the latest finery? It tells us something about their character. What do they look like? Have them interact with a merchant? Apples and pears, tuppence a piece, or three for half a silver. What's that, young fella, my lad? You want to buy an apple, perchance? Interact with them. What's your name, boy? And then throw them a little dilemma. I discovered the power of this from running Imagine some months ago, but give them a moral dilemma and play it out without rules. Perhaps a crime is taking place in front of the character. They see someone stealing from a merchant, slipping an item of expensive jewellery into a pocket and sauntering away. 
What do you do? The idea is to engage the players in a little bit of play, perhaps one scene each, go round the table, play it out and let them ask questions. One witness is a theft, another is arguing with a parent. What are they arguing about and why is it in public? The third is sent to barter for a new sword for their master. Run each scene for a few minutes each, ask the players to sketch out some ideas about their characters as they play. And when you've collectively got some ideas, then you can turn to the character creation rules and roll them up. Places ground us into the fantasy. Details bring the place alive. Playing it out makes it feel real and engages us in play. Tweak things as you shift to character creation, but try to keep it descriptive and grounded in the world. Let the players ask questions and work together to come up with the answers. If it makes sense and seems fun, we'll say yes. Places first, ladies and gentlemen. Start with an interesting community from which these adventures can take place. It'll make the characters more interesting, and it gets you all playing quickly. Plus, it'll head off the tendency to think about the rules. Where are these heroes from, and why should we care about their home? Game on. As you know, I'd love to hear from you. If you've got a question or comment, then please hop over to speakpipe.com slash roleplayrescue, where you can leave a 90-second message. Alternatively, hop over to the blog at roleplayrescue.com and press the button in the top right, which will take you right there. As ever, I'll stick the links in the show notes. And let's see who's called in today. H.A. Jason here, just listened to 11.3 or 11.03 with Simon. Great interview. Wonderful. Uh, I'm, he confirms that 4E is the kitty version of Warhammer. Um, like I've been giving Carl Rodriguez over Gemologist presents a hard time about just a, a playful hard time. But yeah, it, it's interesting how metacurrency, I think metacurrency has a real place in some games. Um, I think for Barbarians Lemuria, it really gives it that heroic feel. It makes the player, the characters feel appropriate, lets you be Conan, right? But if you're trying to do a pathetic aesthetic, then it kind of ruins it. So, yeah, I think metacurrency is an inter- interesting thing. But it was a great, great interview with Simon. I was not aware of his podcast, but I will check it out. And when I went and looked at it, the episodes are all about half an hour, which is a great length. A lot of the actual play podcasts are really long, and, and they're you know, that's hard for me because I listen to so many podcasts. But I can possibly fit another half-hour podcast in there. So I'm definitely going to check it out. Thank you so much for everything you do, Che. And I look forward to getting to the table with you soon. Take care. Thank you, Jason, for calling. It's always good to hear from you. And it almost feels like it's not really an episode until you do. But also thank you for feedback to Simon. I'm sure if he's listening, he'll be delighted to hear that. And of course, yeah. Legend of the Bones as a actual play podcast, about 30 minute episodes, and I've been listening for a while now. It's really good. It's kind of young as well. It's only, I don't know, a handful of episodes, so it's easy to get yourselves caught up and absolutely brilliant stuff. I'll um, perhaps stick the link in the show notes again for this episode. Thank you for your comments. And yeah, metacurrency is interesting. I'm not going to riff off of that particularly. I'll let it hang there and we'll see who's calling next. Hey, Jay. We're here. Just a question for you. Seeing you're the, uh, the GURPS and PUV, uh, what's your thoughts on not very many GURPS adventures being out there in terms of, maybe it's just me, but it seems like 
you know, you can throw a rock and hit a D&D adventure, but I don't think I've ever actually seen a, like, published GURPS fantasy adventure. Hey, Weeb, good to hear from you. Thanks very, very much for this question. It's great because I don't think it could be more inaccurate to say there are no GURPS adventures out there. So let's start with the obvious stuff. There's a free adventure called Caravan to Iron Aris, which has been around since first edition GURPS, and it's very much grabbable. Um, it's free from warehouse23.com or drivethroughrpg.com, and is a bit of a classic, really. Good stuff set in the deserts of Lantara, I think it's called, and basically it's a classic caravan escort mission. But there are loads of published adventures for GURPS out there, from Orkslayer, which was the mini-campaign published for Man to Man, which, if you didn't know, was the original pre-GURPS combat game, all the way through to recent publications, which are all on Warehouse 23, and I think many of which are on Drive-Thru too. Honestly, there are just loads, and they're not all just from Dungeon Fantasy either. I would suggest checking out Doug Cole's Gaming Ballistic as well. He's published adventures for Dungeon Fantasy role-playing game, which is powered by GURPS, and they're all totally compatible. His stuff's great. Lots of Viking and Nordic stuff. I guess the thing about GURPS adventures is that they're not talked about enough. The assumption is that because it's a generic role-playing system, you don't have published adventures, but that isn't true. Um, Here are three titles to get you started, and I'll let you dive off and explore further. The Green Madonna is a swashbuckling pirate adventure set in the Caribbean during the 1660s, the age of the buccaneer. Flare Star is a GURPS traveller adventure, which is really four connected adventures set on board an Empress Morava-class Far Trader starship. And Read the Sky is an adventure for GURPS' classic Reign of Steel, where 20 years ago the robots rebelled against humanity, and now the surviving humans do their best to stay alive, and it's not just the robots who are out to kill them. It's also worth saying that there are several GURPS Infinite Worlds mini-setting books published as PDFs now as well. These are great for giving you a place to imagine an adventure and some seeds to get you going. Anyway, let's just say a big thank you to Weeb for the question and let you guys go discover how rich the GURPS I fear really is. Game on. Hey Jay, Weeb here. Question regarding your Wilderlands uh, game. I know you're using GURPS to run it. I was just curious, in terms of hex crawling, what kind of rules have you established? Um, does GURPS Fantasy have a uh, system for hex crawling? Anyway, game on, man. Hey, we Good second question. And this is a little old one, so I do apologize for holding on to it for a while. So GURPS doesn't have methodology really heavily baked into the game system. It's very much a descriptive game system rather than a prescriptive one and i guess if it's got one weakness it's that it doesn't really have things like hex crawling procedures or dungeon crawling procedures per se although there's guidance on that in the various different supplements that have been brought out so for example dungeon fantasy does talk a little bit about how to run a dungeon and how to run sort of stuff in wilderness but hex calling specifically is actually not terribly fashionable outside of the old school sphere so i'm blending things together here What I did for my Wilderlands game, which, to be honest with you, didn't last very long because our real-life face-to-face gaming didn't survive, what I did is I grabbed the Alexandrians' hex-crawling procedures from the Alexandrian.net. You can find a link to that if you go to his Game Mastery 101 page and look up hex-crawling. But basically, I nicked his system and adjusted it very slightly 
Now, over time, what I've been doing is actually mucking around with different approaches. And when it came to setting up the current Horaeth campaign, although we haven't done any hex crawling yet either, I actually went back and looked at the OSE, that's the BX D&D rules, and again, managed to import those quite effectively. I think actually for me, the Alexandrian stuff is a really nice way of looking at it and approaching it. But, um, you know, it's down to taste. I guess what I'm saying is that GURPS is open for you to import anything you want in terms of methodology and in fact in terms of adventures as well to extend in your last question. Because GURPS deals with real world measurement then everything is really easy to port over and I just found it very straightforward to do. But it's a great question and of course it does point to you know the difference between GURPS as a game system and many others that prescribe exactly how you do this stuff up front. I guess what I'm saying is you can choose your own. Hope that helps. Game on, brother. A short one today, but I hope that you won't hold that against me. Big thanks to listening, and I hope you'll join us again next time. Thanks to Jason Connolly and Jason Weeb for the call-ins today. I love the questions. Please keep them coming. Thanks to the Roleplay Rescue patrons who support the show through patreon.com slash rpgrescue. Thanks also to John from Tale of the Manticore for the show music. That's it for now. Please stay safe and we'll talk again next time. My name is Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. Game on.